Hello, and welcome to another episode of Monkey Business, the podcast, and you might be watching this on YouTube, so the obviously video, that gets behind the mindset, the chimp brain, what really creates the kings and queens of their own particular jungles. And I'm delighted today to be joined by Dax Moy. I met Dax, I think, at AFEST a few years ago, probably about five years ago. And then we had a really fascinating night out and a dinner through mutual friends in my former hometown or home city of Nottingham. And Dax, I'm going to let Dax introduce himself. He just called me out on really understanding his CV. So I'm, I'm, I'm playing the reverse psychology card of letting him introduce yourself. But I do know his CV starts with the fact that Dax is an incredible coach who works with royalty, CEOs, um, elite sports people, celebrities, um, and yet your CV starts with how at, I believe, 15, you stabbed your father and then joined the forces. So I think I'm going to let you take it from there, Dax, and introduce yourself, please. <laughs> so, so I always say that Dax Boy is a really weird guy with a really weird name. So fun fact, there's only one Dax Moy, like literally, if you Google Dax Moy, there's only one combination of that name, right? So first thing, there's only one Dax Moy. There aren't that that many Rosalind Palmers, but there's a few. Yeah, I mean, it's, I I started, I came from a a very violent background, um, kind of, my dad was a Glaswegian gangster, very heavy alcoholic, who was a charmer to everyone else, but not so much at home. Um, you know, wife batter, uh, extremely violent and all this kind of stuff. And, and yeah, kind of all, around sometime around my, my 15th year, I, uh, you know, I woke up to my mom screaming and ended up stabbing him through the heart. I'm also the one who kept him alive, which is one of the reasons why I didn't end up going to prison for life. But I was charged with attempted murder at age 15. Um, all charges were dropped. But I, because of that, I kind of, because I didn't really know where life was going at that time. Um, and also because it was already in my plan. I just I dropped out of school and went to live in. Uh, I went to live in Wales for six months, running up and down mountains, getting myself ready for the parachute regiment. And I joined the parachute regiment junior leaders at 16. Um, from there, I went on, uh, joined the Royal Marines at 21. So okay, I came out of came out of the army and went across to across to the Marines. And then I had some time as a as a reservist. So altogether, I think I did about 20 years in green. Um, 20, but as a you know, largely as a reservist. As a reservist, I. Um, I combined kind of in my civilian life, became a personal trainer in a very short space of time. I became the UK's highest paid personal trainer within about three years of joining, uh, of, of, of qualifying. I became the, the UK's highest, highest paid personal trainer uh, with a background in kind of neuro rehab and that side of stuff. Yeah, and then from there I moved on to you know I, I our, our results were incredible. I owned I owned three studios at one point. Our, our results were incredible, um, way beyond the industry standard, way beyond what most people were getting. And so I started to get some interest from um, from other other trainers and coaches who wanted to know how we were doing that. So I moved into education as well as running my my main business. And then from there, I kind of over the years, what I noticed was a trend of. You know, kind of, you always get those before and after pictures from personal trainers, right? They're kind of the here's Mary before, here's Mary after, right? And they're, they're either 30, 60, or 90 days is kind of like the template. 
And what I noticed was that for 30, 60, 90 days, clients would go like this and there'd be a massive improvement. But if you went back to them 30, 60, 90 days after that photograph was taken, there was a large proportion, even amongst our clients, which were doing better than most, but even amongst our clients who had regressed. And it would be, sometimes they'd regress even further than the start point. And so there was always this kind of, yeah, I can make myself do it, but mm. then I can't sustain the doing of it. Like I don't like another way, the way I translated that over time. And in my earlier stages, I wasn't mature enough to recognize that. But as, as time went on, I realized that people can only make themselves do stuff they don't want to do for so long. Yeah. Right. And then they get, then there reaches a saturation point and they say, uh, I'm, you know what? Like, I like what I see when I look in the mirror now, but I don't like how I feel when all my friends are going out for drinks and they're going out for dinner and they're do doing this and they're doing it. Like, I hate, <laughs> I, I'm really liking what I'm seeing, but I hate, I'm hating how I'm feeling. And so they'll regress back to their previous behaviors. And you pretty much deconstructed that yourself then. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting because, I mean, I would argue that perhaps, you know, something like Weight Watchers their model that's not dissimilar um yeah you know they I, I believe once they tried to get all the weight watchers of the year for the last 10 years together and they had to cancel it because actually they all weighed more yeah um certainly um or they'd gone back to their weights and of course what they would do uh and you know and other organizations is maybe go well we'll have refreshers or we'll have repeat business um but i don't get the feeling you went that way i get the feeling you dug into the mindset would that be right yeah that's exactly what happened so i i started exploring a little bit more of the mindset and i started i mean i, I don't know where the copy of my book is but my, I, I wrote a book on basically on goal achievement um I, back then i i felt i felt i felt <laughs> it was an extremely um simplistic thing get people motivated getting them inspired give them a bigger goal um to to borrow from cynics kind of big enough why and all that kind of stuff and i, I certainly don't agree disagree with that um but i I thought it would be as simple as get people inspired enough, get them motivated enough, give them a big enough why, and they'll push through and they'll kind of, they'll love life and everything that it entails, right? Yeah. Um, and it works for a period of, Because that's you. Yeah, because that's me or that yeah. was me. Right? Yeah. And that, yeah. that's the important distinction to make. So up until that point in my life, anything I wanted, I got through sheer guts, drive, hard work, commitment. Mm. Yeah. Just make yourself bloody do it, right? Yeah. And I, and so I thought if I could instill some of that into people and kind of teach them how to how to be in touch with their with their kind of inner desires in a better way, that they'd get very better results. And they did, and they sustained them longer. But so now instead of 30, 60, 90 days, it was kind of like up, you know, 180 days, but then we still see the drop-off. Yeah. And I'd go, bloody oh, so what's happening here? And I could never quite get to it. And I studied more and more books. I mean, if if I was to spin my camera around here, you'd see I'm surrounded by books here, over here in my man cave, right? Just um, a fraction behind me. <laughs> yeah, right. And, you know, I, I read a hell of a lot. I've been to all the courses and seminars and workshops and all that kind of stuff. And it was talking about, you know, how to motivate people, inspire people, all of that kind of stuff. And yet there always seemed to be this same thing where the, you'd reach saturation point and you go, you know what? Enough's enough. I'm fed up of paying the price and what I'm getting back in return. Like think of it like an investment. What's coming back in return isn't enough for me to sustain this just to look a little bit better than some of my friends do or look a bit better than I yeah. used to look. Um, and then I was given the incredible gift, uh, the incredible gift of post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, I was in a tsunami 
and with my with my family and kind of we were literally walking into into onto the beach when the wave came in and we managed we got away intact thank god right so we all got away um, absolutely intact I'm sorry? In Sri Lanka, was it? In Thailand. Oh, in Thailand. Thailand, yeah. And so, but then we got the kids back to the room and I spent the next kind of three, four hours out in the water um, carrying bodies and babies and holding bits of legs together and doing CPR and dragging people out from under the water, all that kind of stuff. And I got through that day and I got through the subsequent seven or eight years absolutely fine. It was like, you know, I was shook up by it and I had memories and things like that. But... It, it didn't really phase me that much. It was kind of, you know, I think probably the military background and the medic training I'd received and all that kind of stuff. I was just like, okay, it is what it is. Get on with life. And then about eight years into it, I was driving down the motorway and I had a, a bit, I've been going for a really stressful phase at work, kind of, you know, 10 years worth of back taxes. The HMRC wanted to come at me for, I had some staff who were, who were kind of doing dodgy dealings behind my back, at the, at the st- like all kinds of stuff. And mm. life got really stressful. And that stress suddenly just kind of tipped the balance. Um, my brain said, hey, here, have back all those memories and thoughts that you didn't deal with eight years ago and have them all at once. And so I went from a guy who had everything going for me to a guy who literally, uh, well, the first time it happened, it was like bodies landing on the on the front of my car as I'm driving up the M11. And I spun the car 360 and like looking around, I thought I'd hit someone. Um, and then that devolved into you know, sitting like literally sitting up, staring at the wall in my bedroom in the mornings, like crying at three o'clock in the morning, such vivid memories and all that kind of stuff too. I did about two years of about 90 minutes sleep per night, uh, about wow. five, five to five to seven hours sleep per week is what I was getting. Um, and so kind of my, you know, my head was absolutely smashed. Um, how did and- you get, how did you get through that time? Um, not by goal setting <laughs> and not, not by anything that I thought worked beforehand. So all of the, all of the ideas I had about how to get, like, I, I soldiered on through it. I went, mm. screw it, screw it. Let's do it. You know, punching, yeah. punching through. I, I aggressed against the enemy that was in front of me, if you will. Right. Like, yeah. I'm not letting this slow me down. Um, and it slowed me down and it killed aspects of my business and it kind of cost me aspects of my reputation. A lot of people are really, really understanding, but they can't be understanding for five years when your performance is going down, put it that way. Right. Yeah. <laughs> now, might, might be understanding for five, five days, five weeks, maybe five months, but for five years when you're kind of not quite yourself, it's, it's hard and to. Your, and your default action is to kind of come out fighting, isn't it? Yeah. My, yeah. But like, so partly from how I grew up and then partly from, partly from military training, you know, kind of you aggress on the enemy. You don't, you don't back down from it. You keep going. And it just didn't work. And I already had a fair knowledge of neuroscience from the rehabilitative perspective. Like I was able to get people out of wheelchairs that had been in wheelchairs for 10 years. And, you know, people from all around the world would send their, send their patients to me because I was doing things with them that other people weren't able to do. And so I thought, you know what, something in neuroscience has got to be able to explain to me why I'm not able to get through this, why I'm not able to overcome what I'm going through. And so I, I kind of, I, I basically turned myself into a student for several years of digging deeper and deeper and deeper into the neuroscience of mindset, as opposed to the popular psychology, the, you know, most of, and it's, I'm definitely not knocking anyone, right. But kind of most of what we see out there in the, in the coaching world, isn't necessarily neuroscientifically based. It's, it's kind of, it's a bit like um, to use, it's probably a politically incorrect term, but I'm going to use it anyway. It's like the game Chinese whispers. Someone tells you something 
and you I go oh I did this and it worked for me and they tell someone else and they tell someone else and they tell someone else. I, I would I would agree with you I mean you know I I came I had a background in coaching I did Tony Robbins PR yeah I trained in NLP and hypnotherapy in the 90s I had Bob Bays in my business who really was the genius behind a lot of Tony's work um, I worked for a training and development company, but I was never a coach per se. And then I became a therapist. And obviously, I'm trained in rapid transformational therapist, therapy. And that is a combination of clinical hypnotherapy, CBT, NLP, psychology, and neuroscience. Yeah. And then I came to coaching as a career, if you like. So I agree with you. I, yeah. I will always come to my coaching from that basis in the neuroscience. And I, I'm i a great wordsmith like you. And you're right. I see it. And I think, hmm, yeah, interesting. I like, I, I'm, I'm with you. It, yeah. Sometimes it's version, yeah, and, eight, version eight of the Chinese whispers, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, look, I, I get it. Like, and yeah, so I now I'm it. able to make a clear distinction between like how well, because hold on, Dax, because you were, you were doing, you know, Tony Robbins and you were doing Bob Proctor. Like Bob Proctor was one of my mentors for a while. I worked directly with him. Um, you know, you're doing all these things. You're reading the books. And until PTSD came along, you were saying to yourself, this is the best thing since sliced bread. Yeah. Now, suddenly you've got PTSD and you're going, oh, that stops quirk, and it doesn't work. Right. And so what, what I, what I realize is that there are actually kind of two, there's the non-threatened brain model, which yeah. is when you're not overcome by um, any of the kind of the, what, what I would call, there aren't any, there's no such thing as bad emotions, good emotions, but what I call them the dark side emotions. So when you're overcome by fear or rage or panic, the things that we normally lean into, like start with a big enough why and kind of get a clear goal and all of that just goes out the window. When you're overcome by fear, rage, panic, all you've got to do, all you've got to put your focus back into is saying, what does the brain want right now? Mm. And not I'm overcome with fear, rage and panic. So that's a bad thing. But what what purpose does the fear, rage, panic serve? that I'm not fulfilling. Like there's a part of it. It's, it's signaling me something. It's telling me something. It's saying, deal with it. It's a bit like, um, I always describe it to clients. It's a bit like you're driving down the motorway and the gas light comes on, right? On your car. It's not doing it to piss you off. It's not doing it to kind of make your life terrible. It's doing it to say, look, you've got probably about 50 miles left in the tank, pull into a gas station, top it up, and then you can get on with life again. And mm. if you ignore that and you just go, you know, you draw over it with a black marker or put tape over it because you don't like seeing the gas, the gas light come on in your car. Don't be surprised that you break down on the motorway and now someone's got to come and pick you up at three o'clock in the morning. And you've got to pay hundreds of pounds to, to, to be picked up, right? There's a cost to ignoring the signal. So that, Similarly, that was, yeah. yeah, that was the big gift from PTSD then for you, really yeah. having that level of clarity um, and seeing what it did to you. And I suppose now you're saying them for you. Yeah, so you you took it, and once you'd analysed it and worked it out and lived with it, you're now able to really, you know, pay that forward, if you like, with your clients. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So, the you know the the idea that there's the brain simply is operating from a series of needs. It's got it's got a bunch of needs that have to be met, and like meet them, and then all the signal lights go back off again. Don't meet them. And the signal lights just get louder and louder and brighter and brighter. And like the beeping and the flashing and everything just goes on and on and on. Is this why, and I've got a feeling it is, um, 
So I had a look at your website and like everybody, you've got some lovely affidavits. And I think the key message of the affidavits, uh, the endorsement from, and I think a lot of them are coaches because you are a coach's coach, which is also Mm -hmm. an interesting um, issue. But it's within 15 minutes of talking to Dax, I had more clarity about my goals, about my life, about my business. And I also left the call either inspired and excited or calm and not feeling overwhelmed anymore and I thought well that's pretty darn good so how do you do that Dax in 15 minutes from somebody you probably have never spoken to before by I guess the the easiest way to put this is I ignore most of the things they think they're on the call for and (laughs) and I go straight to them as a person and what's going on with them like how a simple way that I begin every call is how do you want to feel by the time we get off of this call? How do you want to feel? Right. And they'll describe it to me. If, it, if it's a bit flimsy and it's a bit thin, I'll ask them to kind of, okay, lean into that and kind of exactly how you want to feel. But you've, you've got me on this call for the next hour or whatever. Like, how do you want to feel by the time we get off? And then I'll, then I'll deconstruct that and I'll say, so why aren't you feeling that way right now? Mm. Right. Why aren't you feeling that way right now? And then very often, like if they've gotten to the call because of something that's going on with their business, they'll start saying, because I'm not making enough sales and I'm not making, and, I, and I'll go, yeah, that's great. Why aren't you making enough sales? Because I'm not showing up. Why are you not, why are you not showing up? Because in truth, I feel like I'm a bit of a, a bit of a fake. I don't, I've, I've got the same shit going on in my life that my clients have got going on in theirs. Yeah, so and I don't, I don't feel like I'm qualified to to kind of guide them through it, right? And so you st- you start deconstructing that and getting back to the truth of every single person that every single coach that comes to me thinks that they have a business problem. For example, now I'm not a business coach. I've, I've always tried to make that clear. I've helped coaches make a lot of money, but not because I see myself as a business coach. If you you could pick, I could pick you. 20 people who are better at Facebook ads than me, 20 people who are better at copywriting than me, 20 people who are better at kind of how to build your websites and all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. Easily, I could I could find those people for you. Um, and even if I sent you to them, you probably wouldn't make that much progress because no. your your problem is never a business problem. It's always a personal one. It's exactly. about who you are. It's there, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And if you don't remove that, then yeah, everything else is just rearranging the deck chairs on the deck of the Titanic. Yeah. And, and so like one, one of the ways I, I describe it is that I, I won't allow the people that I'm working with to lean into the, the story that they they're using that keeps them stuck. Yeah. And you, you won't allow quite a lot actually. Uh, you know, I, <laughs> You're very proud to declare I'm not for everyone and please don't work with me if you'll kind of tick the following boxes and 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 you literally audition clients. I can't think of a better way of putting it, which, of course, you know, in a psychology, in a reverse psychology, you know, makes people want to be with you. You know, if if it's going to be that hard to work with somebody, I I want some of it. But I get the feeling for you, there's a lot more to it than that. Yeah, look, I... I love making money. Um, I like. I, th- I think it's great. It's been <laughs> it's, it's been an extremely joyful aspect of my life over the years, right? Ma- making it, making lots and lots of money. But I'm very clear that I want to I want to make lots of money while the people that I'm working with feel good about giving it to me. Yeah. Um, I never want to take money from someone and have them go away and go. Yeah, it was all right. Like mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm I'm never in any danger. Anyone's going to leave me and say, "Oh, that was crap." But kind of, uh, you know, almost as bad would be someone going, "Yeah, it was all right." I want people to leave and go, 
geez, I can't, I can't believe, right? And that was a lot of money and, and paying out the money at first, the thought of paying that money out was painful. But now that I've paid it, like I can completely see where the value in that was. So I set people, I, I think unfortunately there's, there's three types of, of ways that we tend to approach coaching. We approach it, there's one group that approach coaching as more like the, the savior, right? Mm. No matter who knocks on the door, and I don't think it's out of arrogance. I think it's out of genuine hopefulness, but kind of sometimes there might be a bit of arrogance sneaks in. Whoever walk, knocks on the door, no matter how far down the path they are into the dark, we go, yeah, I can get them out of that. I'm, I'm good enough. I can pull them there. So we, we show up as a savior and the savior ends up dragging and pulling, cajoling and like, come on, Roz, you could do this. Come on. Follow me, babe. Come on, keep coming, keep coming. right? And we, we end up as the savior. We burn out because we're doing all the dragging and the pulling. Yeah, absolutely. And and also they cop out. We burn out, yeah. they cop out. The only time I fell out with a client was when, you know, and again, that was a learning for me about not being super clear about what she was getting and what I was bringing. And, and it was like, well, you didn't hold me accountable. It's like, well, hold you blinking self accountable, you know, yeah. like, here to hold you accountable she's like oh i thought you were an accountability coach i'm like mm, you know yeah. so yeah and so i i say that to clients from day one like i'm not here to hold you accountable right mm, I, like, I'm the same. I, I am the I, same. I describe it that i work with grown-ups only children yeah. need to be told to brush their teeth and put I'm, their socks on in the morning I'm exactly right? the same i was like <laughs> i am not the coach for you. <laughs> you know? so if you think of it like a triangle so we've, we've got the the savior here yeah. right and then on the other corner of the triangle, I see the I see the salesperson type of type of coach, right? Yeah. And the salesperson is constantly trying to sell people an idea, and instead of dragging people along, they kind of tend to be pushing them toward things, right? Yeah. It's, you end up in the same thing. You end up kind of burnt out because you're you're constantly having to make the value of what you're doing appear more than it actually is, so yeah. that the person will take action, right? And then find yeah, sorry, gum. Well, no, I'll come back to a question for that. Do the yeah. other one and I'll come back. And then ultimately, the, the position I like to be on that triangle is as the servant. And the servant is the one that says, you tell me what you, what you want and I'll help you to get it. But helping you to get it doesn't mean that it's going to be me lacing my boots up and running down running down to the corner store for it. It means I'm, I'll, I'll help you with everything you need in order for you to lace your boots up and go there. But yeah. you can't. One of the ways I put it is you can't expect me to work harder on your behalf for what you say you want than you're willing to work. Yeah. Right? Totally. Kind of, I'm part of your team. I'm part of the framework that makes this happen. But you can't expect me to want it more than you do because I don't. It's your life. Yeah. And so as part of being a servant, I try and set people up for success before they even become a client. Like, So if I can tell you, look, you're not going to get these things from me and I'm not going to be this way with you and I'm not going to do these things for you and I am going to call you out on this and I am going to speak to you about that and I will dig into the really dark parts of your life that you've been avoiding and don't want to touch on because that's the only way I know how to make the things you say you want manifest in your life. So if I can tell you all of that in advance, it saves you wasting money with me, getting pissed off at me, getting pissed off at yourself. Like we, we know where we, and instead of it being, one of my big things, and I think I might have first heard this from Steve Chandler. I think it might have been him. This, this idea of expectations versus agreements. Mm. And I try, to, I try to set clear agreements with people from the, from the outset 
rather than them having an expectation and saying, oh, but my last coach did that. That's where I went wrong. And, you know, it was a great lesson for me uh, about five years ago in mm, that, you know, let's let's be very clear here what the agreement is. Yes, I agree. And I like that about your website, obviously, you know, the minute. And in fact, I, I do believe I might I've either stolen it or we had the same idea at the same time, because I do believe on my website, I actually put I'm not for everybody. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, what I was going to say when you were talking about the sales, you know, the triangle. So my what I'm hearing, and tell me if I'm wrong, is particularly when you're being a coach's coach, um, the gap between the sales, i.e., I learned that we should do the six habits of successful people, or I've been using this framework, or I know I get success by doing that, or I just read that book and, you know, the the new thing is blah blah or I've just been on a new course and I'm going to take my client through the XYZ model. Um, And also the kind of saviour, which is, you know, I really want to help them, I really want to save them there lies exhaustion, there lies disappointment for the client as well, because if you're always just rolling out a model, it's not necessarily bespoke or right to them. Mm. Is is your coaching with coaches enabling and empowering them to bridge those gaps? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So so when I when I am working with a with a coach who let's say the reason they've come to me is to improve aspects of their business and become more profitable. Um, when I'm working with them, it's to help them design design a system that is as true to themselves as they can possibly be. So it's not. So we we literally deconstruct. So you can have all your ideas and your training from everywhere, but now now we'd be saying, well, how does Ros say that, and how does she feel about that, and yeah. which which principle for you? Like, so I I like to work a lot in principles because. Um, kind of i've got i've got this thing that i'm constantly saying saying to my saying to my students who come on my courses and my and my uh and my one-to-one coaching clients and it's methods are many principles but few methods often change principles never do right so we're always going to get enticed by new methodologies that come along and it's right to some right to some extent that when a new methodology comes along we do explore it and we embrace it and we pull in the bits that work right but never at the expense of the principle. Mm. So what is the principle that I'm trying to share here at this particular point of, of my practice? What's the principle that I've built my business on? What's the principle that I run my coaching standards through, right? And so if you can start from principles, you can, even if a completely new method comes along next year that kind of um, you think, wow, that's so much better than something I'm doing in this area, all you got to do is kind of lift out that methodology and insert a new methodology, but the principle still holds true. Yeah. It's and like that, the bedrock. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's what, you know, one of the things, you know, when I'm working with people, they, they'll say to me, like, they've, they've been seeing me in social media for over 20 years, right? Kind of, I was on social media. I had a 15,000 person following before Facebook ever, ever came on the scene. I used to use, I don't know, I don't know if you, do you remember Ning? Do you remember the Ning communities, N-I-N-G? No, no, I don't. I don't. Right? It's, I don't. It's, it's, it's old news now, right? But <laughs> but Ning then went on to become Mighty Networks just recently the, in oh, the last okay, few yeah, years. Because so, so I'm, I'm in your group on Mighty Networks, yeah. so I know you're there. Um, but yeah, I, I have 15,000 people back there. So I've still got people following me from 20 years ago who are saying, you know, one of the things that, you know, I didn't quite appreciate as I was going through because I, I was always looking for the new shiny thing and grabbing that and grabbing that and grabbing that. 
But if I look back, I can see how you've evolved over the last 20 or so years, but I can see that you're still saying the same things that you were saying 20 years ago. Mm. And instead, mm. Right. So instead of that being a negative, like so many of us think we have to keep reinventing ourselves. No. Instead of it being a negative, it becomes a positive because somebody looks at you and says, ah, you, you haven't, you haven't jumped on every bandwagon that came along for the last 20 years. You've oh yeah. One, it's what I call the lettering in the rock, you know, Skegness. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All the way through the rock, wherever you cut it at whatever time. Yeah. And um, I, I said something on Facebook recently, which was probably a little bit more controversial than I normally say. And somebody kind of put, ooh, look at you, you know, kind of. And it was quite lovely because I was able to find an old cutting from PR Week, because, you know, my background is PR and I ran a PR agency, where I had been criticising Max Clifford and um, and the media, really, and untruths and spin doctors from about 1999. So I was actually able to put... Actually, no, I, I've been on this page for a really long time. Yeah. Um, can you say that again, that little um, kind of saying you have about principles? Yeah. Methods are many, principles but few. Methods often change, principles never do. And there's a great saying my dad taught me, my wonderful dad, my late dad, which is a principle isn't a principle until it costs you money. Right. Um, ain't that the yeah. case? And so I wanted to talk about issues because one of the things I love about Mighty Networks, I love about your website, and I love in my own life is really talking about things that really matter. Um, and I was looking through, well, I, I didn't even need to look, but I did because I follow you anyway. And I wanted to just address, because I think it's incredibly relevant for the world we live in and the times we live in, your couple of blogs, one was on othering and one was on doing the right thing. Mm. And, well, if I, I'm going to kind of just throw that over to you because I think you know the question I'm asking you. And, in fact, I think the two are very related because othering is about that kind of herd mentality of making somebody different or wrong or excluded or you know we feel better because you're over there and we're all saying you know you're blue we're red um it's much deeper than that and I'm sure you're going to explain but doing the right thing as well is back to the principle isn't a principle until it costs you money sometimes how do you maybe do the right thing but also tread a what's the word I'm looking for a not a safe path but you know a a path from love really a path from integrity but also not not the angry bear coming out the corner and fighting mm. so I'll, I'll start with the second part of that which is the the doing the right thing and I'll, I'll be really really clear I'm not setting myself up here in savior mode and thinking that I know what the right thing for Roz is or anybody else right mm. I've, I've no idea what your right thing is I, I just know mine most people have no idea what their right thing is because they've never sat down and defined themselves. They don't know. The, the way I, I describe most of my coaching is the first phase, the first principle is to help people understand who they are. Yeah. Because that we're a kind of a mishmash hodgepodge of a million different ideas that we kind of, we grasp out of thin air as and when it suits us. And then another time, a very similar situation will arise and we'll grasp a different idea and we'll say, well, that's who I am, right? Yeah. And part of that is natural. We are different, you know, put it this way. 
when I when I was uh, when I was on exercise with my commando mates, what came out of my mouth would be very different to when I was meeting with my with oh, my I'm, aged nan. I'm right? the ultimate chameleon, Dax. Didn't you <laughs> right? know? You know, I've worked with royalty and pop stars and celebrities, and I've stood in the slums of Mumbai with people who own right. a tarpaulin and all the rest. And and of course, you do have to adapt to the circumstance without selling your soul so to say right yeah and so that's that's where principles come back in again right only in in human beings we generally tend to lean into principles within a within a, within several categories so the first category is our morals right and it's the exploration of our morals morals are just shorthand for what most of us think is good and bad right and wrong yeah and somebody else told us that and we grew up accepting it and that's fine because as children you're supposed to do that as adults, if you haven't re-explored your morals since you've become an adult, then you haven't really become an adult. You're still living through your child framework. And if you still live through your child framework, you're very likely to be childish when you come up against a conflict with your morals. Yeah. And that childish, childishness is going to be lashing out, othering, pointing the finger, calling everybody else bad, saying they did it, they took my bike and all that kind of stuff, right? That's that's our childish mm. version. Um, so kind of I make a distinction between being childish and being childlike. Childish is reactive. Childlike is playful and fun and curious and explorative. And most of us aren't really doing that with our morality as we as we as we age. We st we still lean into the exactly the same morals that our parents and our organisations and our churches and our religions and our our social cu cultural kind of frameworks yeah. gave us. Yeah. And we try and step through life carrying that morality, but without ever re exploring it. And it doesn't I talked mean about that this yesterday on a talk I gave actually, and I did Nick Vision from AFES. Uh, he he sums them up as brawls. He right. calls them bullshit rules. Yeah. Um, they're the bullshit rules, the brules that we live by, and we've never questioned, do these rules work for us? Are right. these rules congruent with who we are? Right. And so, so like, and, and I, I would agree with, part, uh, at least partly with that, right? But some of them may, we may still decide that we want them. We go, no, I, I like that morality rule, if you will, right? I, I like that one. I want to keep it. But there's a difference between choosing it as an adult and being given it as a child absolutely right so i sit back down and go no i actually think that's a really good one to keep kind of what what my what my parents or what my culture or what my religion gave me within that particular one of the moral frameworks i really want to keep that yeah right it's right for me now it's right for me now yeah. it's, it makes sense to me to to the person i want to see myself as being that makes a lot of sense yeah Right. Then the next layer of that would be uh, would be our values. Like what we values are just another way of saying beliefs that we hold more important than others. Mm. Right. And kind of I, I use values a lot. Like all of my clients, we won't. I, I refuse to look at your business, your relationships, your any any of the other goals that you've got for yourself. I refuse to do that until I know what your morals, values and your beliefs are. I refuse because mm. I don't know who I'm working with until you can voice that to me. If you yeah. say, this is me, this is who I want to be, this is how I want to be, this is how I want to show up in the world, then I can go, all oh, right, well, can you see the disconnect between your beliefs, values, and morals and what you're trying to achieve over here? Let's just bring more of that, and this is start, going to start happening, right? So it's no, it's no who the person is first. And so it's be morals, beliefs, and values. These are kind of, again, another little holy trinity, you could say. Mm. And once you get these things very, very clear, most people are, are walking through their lives with no idea about 
the value and the the skill of what they're believing. And you know, this is like so I I relate beliefs to being like the map of our life. Yeah. And um, values as being like the compass. And then morals as being the ultimate destination. Like that's where we want to, like I want to live in alignment with my morality while I'm crossing the terrain of life. That's the way of thinking about it. So where does othering come from then? Othering is, other, basically othering is either triggered directly by our, by our morals, um, kind of if, if our morals have been beaten into us, so to speak, and they're so but strong. You're not like me. Exactly. Yeah, you're, yeah. you're not part of the, part of the same collective tribe, right? Yeah. Um, it's easier to destroy another person by, if I dehumanize you, yeah. right. If I take away your humanity and say, well, he or she is just like me, except they grew up in another time, another generation, another, another religious framework, another, another something, right. They're just like me. They probably want to go home and kiss their kids goodnight, and they probably want to kind of make love every every opportunity they get, and they probably want to have low, live in a really beautiful place, and they probably want to go to sleep every night safe in the knowledge that no one's going to be bombing their house. And all that. They're probably just like me in all those ways, but they may have a few things where they're not just like me. And the only we, the only when we're kind of lazy, and, and that's one of the ways I kind of put this is when we're lazy, when we're not really thinking about who we are and who other people might be to us, we start to other them. We start yeah. to say, we start to focus much more on the, here's how they're different from me than we do on here's how they're like me. And othering is, is, a, is a brilliant tool that we can use because once we other, other someone, we can dehumanize them. Once we dehumanize them, we can do more as anything we want to. Well, we've, we've seen it, you know, we've seen it with the, the Nazis and the Jews and we've yeah. seen it. If you look at early black history, you know, where they were like measuring people's heads and saying, yeah. oh, you know, they're not even like white people. I mean, we've seen it throughout history. But what I found quite saddening uh, is we've seen it very recently. In fact, we're, we're living through times when we are seeing it, not just in terms of body autonomy and choices you're making about medical procedures, i.e., you know, we've just come through, you know, times of COVID, but also wars, um, you know, well, potential war or conflict. Um, yeah, we're seeing it now. Yeah, well, look, I think one of the one of the big challenges is once we're once we're in the presence of one of our dark side emotions like fear, rage, or panic, we are we we essentially we lose our faculties for clear thinking. Yeah. Right? Because it, when we're in the presence of of fear, rage, and panic, the, the brain from a neuroscientific neuroscientific perspective, the brain is geared for reaction. It's so these are pre-written programs that says, oh my God, you're terrified. And thinking our way through this might take too long. So let me just give you the reaction. So you do this automatically and you're spontaneous with it. Right. Yeah. Which is great when you're in the presence of a genuine life-threatening, life-threatening instance. It's not so yeah. great when it's not life-threatening to you or it's not immediately life-threatening. And so one of the problems is we're kind of expecting, we're terrorizing the population, you could say, with all the, the COVID stories and the. Well, I, I, I don't I really care what side it. of the fence I, anybody I that's listening to, to this is on. I'm, I'm not telling you what to believe. No, but no I, me, I think most me people listen. One hundred percent. I'm. Yeah. I. I've never come down on any side. I. I. What I'm interested in is why people make their choices. Yeah. 
um, you know, what, go, what goes on up here to make them make their choices. And I'm also interested because I do have a media and PR background in, well, media, in, in fear porn. I can't think of any better yeah. way to put it, Dax. Um, that, you know, if you literally are watching that agenda day in, day out, of course, you're going to go into a place of incredible fear. Yeah. Yeah. Fear porn is a brilliant way of putting it. And that's basically what we've been exposed to for at least the last couple of years anyway. Right. But, you know, it, it goes on and on and on. Like it's it's not it's not something that that is is new to covid. Uh, but, let, you know, staying on the topic 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 of that, um, if you're being exposed to this is how many people in your town, city, country have died this week and you're likely to be one of them if you don't get this thing or if you don't get another one of these things or if you like whatever, whatever the storyline is, if, if you're exposed to that, it's very easy to think that you're able to sit back and make, um, you know, cognizant decisions and kind of that you're, you're, you're we'll call ourselves being informed, but we're not. We're really not. Uh, no. we're, what we are is we're being extremely reactive. We're being triggered. We're being triggered into yeah. a, into a certain, and, you know, coming from PR and certainly people that are, you know, I've worked with people who are very high level advertising people and they know how to use the triggers. Exactly. Of course. It, you, no, no, we're not going to say that. It's called widening the gap. Right. You no. Know, yeah. um, so, you know, here's my pain. Here's my problem. Uh, how do we make it worse? Because if we make it worse, we sell more of what our solution right. is to you. Um, also, in terms of the media, you know, and I'm not, and you know, I'm not here being pejorative about all media, but we do know that you know the adage, and this is back from the eighties, because I thought I was going to be a journalist, and the, the adage then was, if it bleeds, it reads. Yeah. You, know, so yeah, yeah. you don't put on the front page of a tabloid oh everybody's having a lovely day today <laughs> so one one of the kind of acid tests that i i put myself against in 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 many many different situations is a is a question and it's a it's a question it's really really simple to use at any at any time when you when you're particularly when you're emotional but at any time and it's is this who i said i'd be when this happens Right. Is this who I said? And and so it, this can be for both. You could say the, the light side and the dark side. Right. I, I'll. And there's a, there's a year in my life that I called the year of being a dick. Right. <laughs> right? And the year of being a dick. I, I was about five years into being the, the highest paid personal trainer in the UK. And I was on Richard and Judy and I was on this morning and I was on GMTV like I was and I was in all the magazines and newspapers and I was in the Washington Post and all, I was I was brilliant the trouble was I I knew I was brilliant and I was strutting around like I was brilliant and kind of and I think by most people's by most people's standards like I speak to people about it now and like, oh you weren't too bad but I knew that I was looking down at people that year I was like, oh, you ain't earning what I'm earning. You ain't yeah, doing no, what I'm I, doing. Yeah, I, no, I went there myself as well, to be right. honest. And I'm not yeah. proud. I'm not proud of it. And it was towards very much the end of my PR because most of it was struggle, 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 build, build, build. Let's pretend we're more successful than we are. Oh, my yeah. God. And I pay the mortgage. You know, that was what was probably going on for most of it. But there was probably about a two, three-year period before I sold the business when, yeah, you know, we were traveling first class and I had a nanny. And 
Yeah, I, I think I was a bit of a dick as well. Yeah, yeah so, you know, I, I had this year of being a dick and I, like one day I woke up and I was I was actually getting, literally looking in the mirror. Like I know it's easy, it's an easy metaphor, but this was actually true. I was looking in the mirror, I was getting, getting dressed on the way to the work and I, I had that like, who the fuck am I moment? Like, what's going on? What's going on with you, Dex? Like, is this who you said you'd be when you made it? Like, were, were you going to be this guy or were you going to be... I'm not the kind of guy who's humble, humble like that, like meek and mild no, humble. No, 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 not. I was never going to be the guy who flaunted it in people's faces, and I was never going to be the guy who was about. Because even now, like I live in a, I live in a former council house in a, in a terrace. Right? I've earned loads and loads of money over the years. I like where I live at the moment, and I, I drive a car that I've had for 15 years because I bought it brand new and I loved it. And I still love it, right? So, like, I'm not a guy who wants to upgrade his license plate every year and get something, no, get something I, new, right? I live on a three-acre small holding in Lincolnshire, not the most fashionable right. county, but you know, for my birthday, I got bought ten sheep. You know, right. and I'm, I'm in wellies most of the time. So right. for me, but, you I know, I, do, one yeah. of the one of the things that I that I decided years and years ago, like, I think everyone has their one day when I make it, I will story. And for me, one day when I make it, I will was never about living in a mansion, driving fancy cars or any of this kind of stuff. It was, I will travel literally everywhere in the world that I've always wanted to go and I'll take my family with me. And I've done that. Like, so yeah. huge amounts of income over the years, but a lot of it has gone to travel. Like we've, we spent like, you know, kind of 50 grand a year for a, for a period and 60 grand a year just to go to places as a family. We've, we've been to Thailand like 63 times. Great memories, um, though. Yeah. And so for me, that was my one day when I make it, I will. That was what I wanted to do with the money. It wasn't about living in a mansion, driving a Rolls Royce or any of that kind of stuff. And it comes back to knowing yourself. It comes back to who did I say I would be when this happens? And I, and I realized that at the end of that year of being a dick, like, oh, you're not being who you said you'd be. Yeah. And it this ties in with the um, this ties in with the othering thing, right? Who did I say I would be when this happens, right? When, when something devastating and shocking happens, when something really good happens, when like, who did I say I'd be? And the trouble is the reason why I think we've leaned so hard into the othering is because most of us haven't done the work on asking, ever asking ourselves who, who I'd be when this happens. Or knowing right? who you are even what, before that. What we're very, very clear on is who everyone else should be when this happens. Yes, 100%. And right? you said it earlier, you know, you said it earlier about most people don't know themselves. So when I'm when I'm talking, uh, giving talks or talking to my clients, I have two frames of reference, very much what you're saying. So the first one is the Julia Roberts and eggs moment. So I always talk about the runaway bride with Julia Roberts, the movie where she always bolts from the altar just when she's about to get married. And she's in a diner with Richard Gere in this scene. And the waitress comes around and asks her how she likes her eggs. And she's like, oh, I'll have them, you know, like boiled. Oh, no, Jeff, Jeff like that. I'll have them fried. And she realizes that she's been such a people pleaser, particularly with the men in her life. She doesn't know how she likes her eggs. And she literally yeah. has a breakdown at that table. And it might seem trivial, but it's huge. It's huge because she didn't know who she was. So she didn't even know how she liked her eggs cooked. And the other one I have very much like you is, it's a lovely saying, which is be the person your dog thinks you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that. I like that. But is this why you keep 
clients on a one-year journey, maybe keep is the wrong word, but, you know, you, you again, on your kind of work with me application form, you talk about ways to work with you. And one of them is, you know, you're going to be with me for a year, which, yeah. you know, one half of me could go, what a brilliant business model that is as a coach. You know, why aren't I doing that? But, you know, why is that, Dax? So... There are actually three ways to work me, right? There's like a two-day intensive, which is where we just pick one topic from your life and dig into that. So it might be related to your business. It might be your relationship. We still have to do a lot of the same core work, but we'll theme it into that area. Um, the other is that people come and live with me one-to-one on a retreat in Thailand and literally we'll do everything from the health side of their lives, but we'll spend a lot of time on the self identity identity and expand that into their most important relationships so they'll, they'll live with me there and then they'll go home and take that back but the the most powerful way is the year-long work and the reason the year-long work takes a year is because it can be scary pulling back the the layers of the of the onion right it can, it can be mm. scary kind of pulling off the various masks that we're wearing and some people do that really 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 quickly at the start they go oh i've removed four layers of the onion right? But then you might find that they've got several months where they make no progress. Others yeah. might go, I'm not making any progress, but then they'll suddenly 10 and layers of the onion will come off. Mm. And so because I, you know, I come at this as a servant and I believe, I really, really believe in whatever you're paying me has to be of you know, massive, massive value to you. Like you've got to be getting a return on the investment. I honestly don't believe in most cases I can do my best work in, in just a couple of months. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I know some people are fast starters, some people are slow starters, some people are fast fin- strong finishes, some people are weak finishes. And I don't know what phase of life you're in and where you're going to be fast and slow, but I know, give me a year, and, and no matter where it. you started, yeah. we're going to end up where, yeah. where, yeah, where you make, wanted to that be. That makes total sense. Yeah. Oh. But, you know, the interesting thing is that my, my average client has stayed with me for – oh, so, so if, I, if I look at the last 20 years, the average client has stayed with me for eight to nine years. My longest client stayed with me 15 years. Right. So, so they, they just keep doing the work. They just keep leaning into the next version of who they want to be and the next and the next. And without obviously naming names, um, do you find a big difference between, let's say, royalty, celebrities, CEOs, or they all got similar issues? Yeah, they all have similar issues. And the similar, similar issues is this. And I, I spoke about it on a podcast last week saying, you, you imagine what it, what it feels like to be. Let's say, obviously, not that we've made it, right? But we've come a certain certain distance compared to maybe some of the people that are following us, right? Mm. And though, but even even ourselves, we're kind of, we've got our next level of one day when I make it, I will, right? If, if I could just get the business really rocking and rolling this next year, two years, three years, or whatever, five years from now, I can see this happening, right? We, so we've always got that. Now imagine being a um, being a uh, celebrity who is who's got everything who's got all the jets and the cars and the houses and the accolades and everything else and they've got their life still doesn't feel right it still doesn't feel balanced it still doesn't feel like they've got what they want from life they haven't got anything to really look forward to so in a way they're more screwed up than we are because at least we've got the if i had that life would be better so celebs tend not to have that it's the as good as it gets moment you know like you know, I, I was over here. I did all of this because I wanted to be over here and feel amazing. I'm over here 
I'm in, you know, or talking heads, you know, how did I get here? This is not my beautiful wife, my beautiful house, my beautiful life. And then the Jack Nicholson, is this as good as it gets? Because the, the, they don't feel enough inside. They don't feel it inside. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's my take on it. Yeah. Is that your take on it? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Like if, if you, if you don't have, if you don't have that, kind of feeling that you're in the place where you always hoped you'd be you're always going to feel lost right uh, and that's that's how i that's how i best sum up my my celeb clients and my high flight the ones that everyone else is jealous of and the ones that everyone else gets pissed off at and says what right have they got to be unhappy when they've got everything oh, well no. actually no, no, no. They're, <laughs> they're, they're in some respects they they're worse off than you you've got something to look forward to i i would Agree with you. Um, So (laughs) we're way over our half hour, but I think (laughs) we could make this into an all-day podcast. So what do you call your chimp mind, Dax? The Hulk. Um, yeah so the hulk my my natural tendency is toward anger and rage when when i get when i get chimpified so i don't tend to respond to many things with fear with with, with like flight or freeze mine is fight so i have to rein the hulk back in again and go well a punch in the face isn't the best isn't the best you know whether that be a real punch or a, or a metaphorical punch but a punch in the face isn't the best solution to what's going on in front of you right now kind of Calm, yeah. calm the hell down and, and back off and, and get back to being human before you answer this. And is there a question I haven't asked you that maybe you'd like to ask yourself? Um, yeah, I mean, look, I, I guess it's the one thing. It's, it's, it's everything that my business and my life philosophy is, is based upon. It's kind of a, it's a It's just a reminder to people about what underlies literally everything or what I believe underlies everything about kind of having life the way you want it. And it's this, is that you don't have to be more than you are right now to be happy, successful, and free. But if that's ever going to happen for you, if that's ever going to come true, you have to be all that you are. And most people aren't being all that they are. They're, they're showing the world parts of themselves. And if you just showed up where, where, you know, I'm, I'm profane and profound. I'm kind of, um, I'm wise and I'm stupid. Um, I'm kind of really, really serious. And then I'm really goofy. I'm like, I'm, I'm all of these different parts. And if I can just lean into letting the world see all of it, then I'm going to have a much happier existence. And I think most people's problems come from, they think they have to somehow be more than they are. They're yeah. like, I'm not good enough in these areas. It's, it, it's never a case of not, we it's can always exhausting. improve. It's yeah. exhausting. So but it's, it's never a case that we can't improve in certain areas, but it's a case that have you shown the world all of you? Like it doesn't have to be stark bollock naked kind of thing, but like, are you, are you showing the world as close as you're courageous enough to be? Are you showing the world your naked self? Are you saying what you really believe? Are you, are you sharing what's true for you? And I think most people aren't. Yeah. So if anybody's been listening who either doesn't want to be a dick anymore or wants to find the best, most authentic, incredible version of themselves, how do they get hold of you? Well, I'm on social media kind of, so Facebook, uh, Facebook quite a lot. Uh, like I said, there's only one Dax Moy. There's only one Dax Moy. Right? <laughs> there's so there's only Dax one Dax Moy, so it's kind of easy to find. D-A-X and easy to find yeah. Um, but yeah, there's DaxMoy.com um, I, where I train um uh, trainers and coaches for the coaching is on mindmapcoach.com and enlightened coach is my community for coaches 
Thank you. I think we, we could definitely carry on this conversation. <laughs> I'm going to have to have you back again. Um, it's been a pleasure. I'm sorry I talked across you a couple of times. No, not at all. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on. It was such a conversation. I was like, <laughs> I, I really want to join in. I, I probably will get my interview badge rescinded after today. But, um, <laughs> it, it, it's just, I love a conversation and this has been yeah, such me a fantastic too. conversation. So thank you. So Lovely. you've been listening to Monkey Business. I'm Rosalind Palmer and my guest today has been Dax Moy, the one and only. Thanks very much. (laughs) 